This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on e-therapy and ethics. This, remember, is a two-hour presentation. We will take a break in the middle. I want you to remember that it's important to know your state laws and board regulations because they vary considerably. Uh, in certain states, you can be a certified addictions professional and practice independently. In other states, not so much. In certain states, um, you have to meet certain qualifications in order to provide e-therapy. They require special training or special uh, continuing education. Other states do not. It's Again, really imperative that you know your particular state. You also need to know the uh, privacy policies and laws between states and entities. So if you happen to be licensed to practice independently in Tennessee and Florida, for example, you need to know what the privacy laws are in each state. So if you're seeing a client in Tennessee, what privacy laws govern their stuff and if you're seeing a client in florida obviously what privacy laws govern their stuff if there are any differences the best thing to do in when handling differences between states is when at all possible write your standard operating procedures to conform to the most restrictive states privacy privacy laws we're going to go through a lot of different things today, and they were drawn from Guidelines for the Practice of Telepsychology by the American Psychological Association, the ACA 2014 Code of Ethics and Technology, New Solutions to Emerging Problems, the ACA 2014 Code of Ethics, specifically Section H, NBCC's Policy Regarding the Provision of Distance Professional Services, and ISMHO suggested principles for the online provision of mental health services. And then we will wrap up, if we have time at the end, by briefly going through the National Association of Social Work Standards for Technology in Social Work Practice. I'll give you a hint. Most of these practices overlap each other considerably. Some are a little bit more spelled out than others, but 
you know, I found the NASW standards to be the ones that were most articulated in terms of they explained what each standard meant. They gave examples more so than did, for example, NBCC. Other resources, if you are doing e-therapy or interested in e-therapy, Tip 60 from SAMHSA, and it's available as a PDF if it will open, um, is a great tool to use to learn about different options that are available for behavioral health services. And SAMHSA doesn't want to come up today for some reason. And then there's also this um, this link here for, so let's drag over, oops, that's health information technology. SAMHSA? Here we go. Tip 60, using technology-based therapeutic tools in uh, behavioral health services. I did do a webinar, a podcast on that. So you can go to Counselor Toolbox podcast and find that if you just want the quick and dirty overview of what they went into in tip 60 but there's a lot of really useful information it's a free download so you can get that from the substance abuse and mental health services administration when you have questions about hipaa or high tech you can go to hhs.gov and this particular page on hhs.gov is on health information technology and it talks answers some really common questions about HIPAA and HIPAA compliant, basically. It doesn't go into e-therapy per se. It's much more general for, uh, so it can be applied to telemedicine, telepsychology, e-therapy, etc. But it can help you answer some of your questions or at least get you pointed in the right direction. If you are considering practicing e-therapy or if you already do, it's important to be aware of HIPAA and high tech. HIPAA, as we all know, is the Healthcare Information Portability and Accessibility Act, and that came first, and that governs all of the protected health information, the written stuff as well as the electronic stuff. They found that after HIPAA was passed, people began using online methodologies more, so they passed the High Tech Act, which set further guidelines and restrictions in some cases on what we can do and can't do in terms of um, seeing patients virtually and handling uh, protected health information via digital means. Uh, the High Tech Act also took HIPAA, which we are bound by, and applied it to business associates. So not only do we have to comply with HIPAA, but our business associates do. And I'm going to say this a bunch of times today, so forgive me, but it's one of my soapboxes. You must have a signed business associate agreement from any of the business associates that you work with unless they are specifically exempted. And, for example, credit card processing, even though they do handle what's considered PHI, credit card processing companies were specifically exempted from um, HIPAA, so you don't have to get your credit card processor to sign a business associate agreement. But if you're signing up for a service that for um, writing your notes, for an electronic health record, for um, email, for texting, for any of that sort of stuff, if they say they're HIPAA compliant, well, that's wonderful. But you are not in compliance, and technically they are not in compliance, until they agree and provide you with a signed business associate agreement. That is the paper that binds you and binds them, so to speak, to the HIPAA requirements. 
throughout this course, we're going to identify the differences between e-therapy and face-to-face -face counseling. You know, we're going to talk about the biggest difference is the fact that in e-therapy, depending on the modality that you use, you may be more or less able to discern uh, nuances and nonverbals. Obviously, text, you lose a lot. Video, you don't lose near as much. And face-to-face, um, -face, you lose some. But And telephone. Telephone is also considered in e-therapy if you, you know, call somebody on the phone. We're going to discuss the pros and cons of e-therapy, discuss issues with client confidentiality, explore issues related to boundaries, dual relationships, and social networking, review the various ethical codes as they relate to e-therapy. I'm going to let you, for the most part, read the one that applies to you, except at the end you know, if we have time, we're going to go through the NASW. We'll talk about dealing with disinhibition, which is really prominent in uh, e-therapy, especially in text-based e-therapy. If you're on video or on the phone, people tend to not disinhibit as much. But using text-based e-therapy, whether it's text messages or email, people can disinhibit. And that basically means that they take off their filter and they tend to say things that they wouldn't normally say to you in a face-to-face -face situation, which can be mean they become more vulnerable, but in this case, we're referring more to when they become more inappropriate. And we will finally look at some common ethical violations in e-therapy. Why would you participate in e-therapy? Oh, I can list the reasons, but let's just start with a few. People can access experts on a particular problem in a greater area. It used to be we could access professionals. You know, if I was in Florida and I needed a specialist in trauma and there was one in Colorado, used to be I could refer a patient to, you know, e-therapy e services with that provider. Now the laws have changed, partly because every state wants to have their, um, to get their money, basically, is my theory but laws have changed so generally you have to be licensed not only in the state in which you practice or in which you reside but also in this you also have to be licensed in the state in which the client resides so there's no loosey-goosey I'm, I'm licensed in my state so I can practice with anybody anywhere not anymore however if I am in rural podunk Florida and I have a specialized issue that I need to see a therapist for, and there happens to be a great therapist in Orlando or in Miami. E-therapy can make that happen. I don't have to drive for five hours to access that clinician, so I can potentially become a client of theirs. It also means that as clinicians, we can serve a greater population. I came from Gainesville, and... Licensed clinicians are a dime a dozen in Gainesville because there's a university there that, you know, has counselor education programs. Therefore, it's hard to run a private practice because the market is completely flooded in that area. But there are lots of areas within the state where that's not the case, where they're not completely flooded and or where people could benefit from certain specialties. And... In many states, and I see Idaho is one of them, Florida as well, there are a lot of very, very rural areas that need high-quality mental health services. And a lot of people, you know, even if they wanted to, 
wouldn't be able to drive every week two hours to, to see a therapist. E-therapy is more cost-effective for the practitioner and the patient. Yes, there is some cost with getting set up with telemental health, HIPAA-compliant stuff, but the price on that has come way down, which means you could potentially have a home office and not have the overhead of another of an office building, of a brick-and-mortar office, plus the internet and electricity and liability insurance for slip, slips and falls and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it. That can be good. As a therapist, it also um, is more cost-effective in terms of I, I don't lose time to traveling. I don't have to drive 40 minutes into the office and 40 minutes home. So that's another potentially another client I could see. It's more cost-effective for the patients because they don't have to drive, so they don't lose money and time driving. Think about your clients who get paid on an hourly basis. If therapy is an hour and they drive 30 minutes, it's 30 minutes to drive and park, and then 30 minutes to drive and park back at their office, that's two hours worth of pay they lose. If they need to get a babysitter, you know, that's two hours that they've got to pay the babysitter because they have to pay for their drive time as well as the therapy time, not to mention the fact if you're running late or something, they have to pay for that. So e-therapy can be a lot more cost-effective for the patient. They don't have the same childcare expenses. They don't have the same time loss. They don't have the just this simple wear and tear on their vehicle. Those are all wonderful. It's more convenient because a lot of people who do e-therapy are willing to offer slightly different office hours. If I have a brick-and-mortar office, I may not be real comfortable about seeing somebody at 8 o'clock at night because I'm going to have nobody else in the building with me. There's some safety issues. I would, however, potentially see a client online at 8 o'clock at night because, you know, the, there are less safety issues that I need to con consider. Uh, there's also a wider range. A range of business hours. Um, Tennessee and Florida, I can tell you both of those states have multiple time zones. Parts of Florida are central time, parts are eastern time. Same thing in Tennessee. That gives me an extra hour of leeway here and there in order to work with clients. Online counseling provides a degree of anonymity for clients. Uh, they may be able to see somebody in the next county over, or the next county over from that, if they don't want to be seen in their county. They're not having to go to a waiting room where they might run into somebody they know or be seen going into the building. You, you can explore from there, but that allows a lot of people the comfort of being able to get services without having to worry that everybody in the neighborhood or the PTA is going to know. People may be more open since they're in their comfort zone. Some studies have shown that people tend to be more relaxed if they're not in a therapist's office where it feels kind of clinical. Many youth, and I use that term kind of loosely, uh, millennials and younger, tend to prefer e-therapy modalities because they're used to it. We grew up on the phone. You know, as, as teenagers, I remember you know, having one of those really long cords on our phone because we didn't have wireless back then and you know, spending hours and hours on the phone in the evening. Youth do the same thing. If you've got a teenager in the house now or maybe even you do it, I know I, I can be guilty. The mobile device has become sort of an extra appendage. We're used to communicating 
through mobile devices. So some people are more comfortable doing that. They've done some studies that have found that younger people, uh, people who are younger than I, have actually become less comfortable and developed more social anxiety if they have to communicate in a face-to-face situation because they are much more used to communicating online. Now, the interesting thing is that that same social anxiety doesn't seem to transfer if they're doing a video chat with you on, you know, a HIPAA-compliant video service. E-therapy can also be used as a therapist extender. Remember, e-therapy encompasses basically any digital intervention. It can be using the telephone. It can be email. It can be text messages, all HIPAA compliant, of course. It can be um, online activities that clients do. We're going to talk about a lot of these. It can be apps that they download that help them um, implement tools that they've learned in counseling, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm thinking... I'm thinking the name is something like cows, but I know there is a um, app that is out that clients can fill out and it transmits information directly to the therapist with daily journals and those sorts of things. These can be therapist extenders, so the therapist is not having to be there, but it is reinforcing what you've talked about in therapy. And e-therapy is available to just about anybody with... A DSL connection or better and if you're going to do video therapy a cheap webcam it doesn't have to be really expensive to get set up as with everything there are drawbacks setup takes some cost and technical know-how you obviously have to have internet you have to have the camera um, and as a therapist we need to be able to make sure that our network and our computers and all that kind of stuff are set up in a HIPAA high-tech compliant fashion. You must be thoroughly familiar with HIPAA and high-tech. There are a lot of HIPAA and high-tech act violations, which often make e-therapy seem less professional. Now, on a side note with that, um, people who are coaches are able, because they are not regulated or licensed by the state or nationally, they are able to provide coaching services across state borders. They are also, a lot of The public doesn't understand the difference in many cases between a coach and a therapist, especially because a lot of therapists have also gotten coaching designations. So people may, in some cases, be enrolling in coaching services, thinking that they're getting counseling, and or coaches often, not all of them, but there are frequent times when coaches overstep their boundaries in terms of actually moving into treating something like depression or anxiety instead of coaching them for life improvement. Okay, e-therapy can be more difficult to handle crises and identify decompensation. If somebody is on video, you're going to see a little bit more. If they are on the phone, you're going to get, you're not going to have the nonverbals, but you're going to get tone of voice and that sort of thing. If it is straight up text in some form or fashion, it's going to be really hard to just discern if somebody is just communicating a very powerful emotion, thought, experience, or if they are in a depressive episode, for example. There are some boards, as well as people, that argue that accurate assessment cannot be done virtually. There are some boards that say, period. 
you need to have somebody come in for a face-to-face -face for the assessment and then you can consider e-therapy there are other boards that say assessments and people that say assessments must be done either by video or face-to-face -face. that way you can get the nonverbals. and then there is the general unspoken where um, some people believe that they can do an accurate assessment and they're not reg their regulating boards aren't aren't controlling it um, believe they can do an accurate assessment through paper well online inventories and text chat and those sorts of things that is an ethical dilemma we're going to continue to face what does it take in order to do an accurate assessment with someone um, what would that have to look like and that is an ethical decision you have to make because if you do an assessment for example and you're not using let's say you do an assessment using email and text message or something and the client turns out to be much more depressed than you thought they were and they commit suicide then you know your assessment could be called into question and it could theoretically not only be an ethical issue but a liability issue all modes of therapy can be captured and redistributed this is another drawback if you are doing a video chat with someone they can record it they can screen capture it if you are using a chat room with someone so you're actively engaged in a chat room chat with them and or a chat room group they can screen capture that if you send them an email obviously they've got the email they can forward it anything you do online can potentially be captured and redistributed you just have to remember that if the client captures it and redistributes it that obviously is on them and if you're using appropriate HIPAA and high-tech safeguards then an unidentified third party is not going to be able to capture and redistribute it but it is important to remember that you know clients can capture that information in cases of domestic violence there are unique challenges when you're working with a client who is in a domestically violent relationship their significant others may install key loggers on their computer which would mean that their significant other knows what they're talking about um, with you they're able to basically read a transcript their significant others may put a camera like a little nanny cam in a place where they can re record the computer screen their significant others may somehow hack into and access their email there are a lot of things you need to consider when working with the client who is in a domestically violent relationship I would strongly discourage now it's not an ethical issue um, well it is an ethical issue it's not a legal issue none of the boards have come out and said you can't effectively see clients of domestic with domestic violence issues online however it is so incredibly easy for someone who is basically living in the same household to find out what's going on in my personal estimation it's just too dangerous it's just too dangerous um, now they may be able to do e-therapy on a friend's computer from you know a whole different house and a whole different network or something that might be possible or from work but then there are other issues with that in cases where you're working with somebody who comes from a high context communication culture like people who are Asian e-therapy especially non-video e-therapy may not be the best mode of 
communication because a lot of what they say and communicate is done through um, nonverbals, tone of voice, etc. I'm going to get to it in a little while, but to answer your question for verifying that you are talking, uh, emailing, or texting the right person. In email, you want to make sure that you have the correct email address. So the first email you send should be a verification email um, to the client that says, you know, this is Jane or whatever, and uh, I want to verify who this is. That person would respond with a predetermined phrase or graphic or something to let you know that it was them. You don't want them to respond with, yes, it's me, because anybody can respond with, yes, it's me. You're going to have to have those basically authentication processes in place, kind of like your bank does, where you have to verify that, yeah, that's the image that I chose, and these are my three special questions. Remembering that, you know, a lot of times special questions are really easy for people to guess, so it's always better to... Choose something kind of off the wall, like a color. So if I email you to verify that it's you this week, you're going to tell me that it's, you know, you're the color purple or, or what have you. That, obviously, if you're using video, is a non-issue. But if you're using text, that is going to be an issue. When you're using email, the first time you send the email to make sure it's going to the right person and you wrote it down correctly, yada, yada, get that verification. After that, part of the um, security of email is incumbent upon the client. However, regular checks, regular verifications for who it is is really helpful. Encouraging them to always start out emails to you, if they're initiating an email, always start out emails to you with a special code phrase that they use. That can help you know that it's them requesting information or initiating a conversation versus somebody else who got access to their email. Um, obviously, don't email them the, the special code that they're going to use. You don't want to send them an email. This week, you're going to tell me purple is our special code because then anybody who has access to their email will know purple so they can respond. Um, so that's something you need to discuss in either in snail mail or on the phone if you don't do video or in, in video chat. When you're texting, and there's a lot of stuff with texting we're going to talk about, it's very important every single time to verify who you're talking to using some sort of special passcode or phrase. When you're using e-therapy, it's helpful to monitor the effectiveness of your e-therapy. And... You can monitor it using technology or intervention usage rates. So if you have a face-to-face practice as well as an online practice, you can monitor, you know, how many people, how many of my clients are using e-therapy versus face-to-face? What do they prefer? You can identify the demographic characteristics of clients that prefer telemental health. If you are wanting to target that client group, then you can look at, expanding your telemental health services. You also want to look at retention and satisfaction rates for clients. Do you have more premature dropout? Uh, are they less satisfied with the services they're receiving through e-therapy? You don't want to try, well, you want to make sure that they are getting the benefit 
and getting the level of services that they want. It's hard to compare text counseling to face-to-face -face counseling because they're so different. But the goal is the same. Does the client feel that they are moving forward? You want to monitor staff satisfaction. If you're in a single-person private practice, that's you. Are you happy doing e-therapy sort of counseling? Or do you miss actually being in a room with somebody? You want to pay attention to your equipment malfunctioning rate and downtime because that's obviously going to cut into your um, billable hours as well as client satisfaction and staff yourself, your own frustrations. Look at the cost of care and cost offsets. Yes, it costs more to have the higher, faster internet speed, but the cost offset is I'm not having to rent a brick and mortar office look at rates of referral and monitor clients regularly for changes in symptoms just like you would in face-to-face -face practice considerations for appropriateness not everybody is appropriate for e-therapy the client's level of comfort preference for and access to technology is going to be paramount somebody may have my mother what had plenty of access to technology she had the computer she had a good internet connection she hated it um, and e-therapy would not be appropriate for her necessarily now if for some reason she had to engage in e-therapy sort of services there are options for her it would have been the telephone <laughs> she was comfortable with the telephone you want to look at the client's cognitive capacity and maturity can they handle the e-therapy um, setting can they get themselves there and you know log in on time can they receive depending on whether you're talking or writing can they receive information verbally or through visual means and encode it in a way that is meaningful and communicate effectively back what they're saying um, people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders for example often communicate they talk they send out information at a much higher level than what they're actually receiving the stuff that they receive they have difficulty interpreting and encoding my preference not that there's a hard and fast rule my preference for that particular population would not be e-therapy unless it was video based you want to look at past and current medical and behavioral health diagnoses including psychoses if someone has a lot of medical issues and it's hard for them to get out of the house then e-therapy may be more appropriate if they are older um, my husband's grandfather right now is he has diabetes and he's starting to develop a lot of um, neuropathy in his legs so he cannot feel the pedals they cannot drive anymore yeah if he needed therapy if he needed some sort of contact e-therapy might be helpful if it could be figured out how to make that happen if somebody has a history of psychoses e-therapy is generally not appropriate um, if they are well controlled and have been well controlled it may be something to consider um, especially if you're using video means but someone who is actively in a psychotic episode is deemed not appropriate for e-therapy services generally you need to look at the person's communication skills how well do they communicate um, again if you're using video some of this stuff is really sort of not applicable because they're talking to you the same way they would in a face-to-face -face setting if they're if they're using text how well do they communicate 
my old boss, really smart man, great guy, could you know get all kinds of stuff done, but very old fashioned. To this day, I think he thumb types um, or fi one finger types on the keyboard. And when he types on his phone, it's very painstaking. If you got a whole sentence out of him, he went to a lot of effort to give you that. So he would not probably be appropriate for text-based counseling because it would be so frustrating for him to communicate. And likely, because he doesn't type well, he would not be as explicit as he probably needed to be to communicate his feelings because he'd be trying to keep it as short as possible. Another thing to watch out for with text-based counseling is clients who use uh, speech-to-text in order to avoid having to actually type. If you've ever used speech-to-text before, if you've used, you know, any of those services, Siri or whatever, you know that they are notoriously inaccurate. So before, if you get a kind of a garbledy gook message from somebody, before you start freaking out that they've entered into a psychotic episode, you, know, you might want to check if they were using speech-to-text. You want to look at the client's support system. Being at a distance means that if they go into crisis, you know, if they go into a crisis in your office in a face-to-face -face setting, you can sit there with them and, you know, make sure they're safe until other things are arranged. If you are in a distance counseling situation, that's not so, so much true. You may, if it's a video session, you may be able to sit there on video chat with them until they get support. But if they turn off the video and hang up on you, there's not much you can do. Ideally, you want to know what the client's support system is so you know that there is someone there who can help get them to the emergency room or sit with them if they had a particularly powerful session in order to help them get regrounded. <clears throat> and you want to look at a history of violence or self-injurious behavior. People who have these in their history may not be appropriate for online counseling. Again, if they become highly dysregulated, then those impulsive behaviors may not be able to be controlled as easily if you are 250 miles away as they would if you were sitting in the same room. They have found, and I linked to the different journal articles on them, they have found that pretty much any of your mood diagnoses, um, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, postpartum depression, um, those things can be effectively treated if the client is not psychotic and has all the other communication skills and support and everything else that we talked about, um, then it, those d issues can pretty effectively be treated ver via telemental health. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, PTSD, seasonal affective disorder, eating disorders, and substance abuse also all have a fair amount of research showing that in situations where the client meets all other appropriateness guidelines, those diagnoses can typically be effectively managed via telemental health. Um, Marcella has a good question. If a client is in crisis, can we call 911, stay on the video, and mute the video when we're calling if it's an emergency? You certainly can. If the client's willing to stay on video with you, but you can't force them to stay on video, and that's where it gets a little dicey if they get upset and they just hang up on you, um, then there's more of a problem. Uh, 
but yes, obviously you're going to have situations or you could have situations where you need to call the crisis response team or 911 or, you know, their significant other that is their emergency contact in order to help them stay safe. And you may believe at that point that it is appropriate to stay on video with them until whomever you called gets there. So yeah, that would be an appropriate intervention. So informed consent differs for telemental health, and it differs pretty significantly. So if you're planning on using your old informed consent documents, yeah, you got a problem. Um, I-S-H-M-O, and I can't tell you what that stands for right now, but, um, uh, and NBCC, I-S-H-M-O sets a lot of the guidelines for telemental health, and then we all know NBCC. Um, state that all of the following must be part of the informed consent. We must clearly communicate to clients the possibility of misunderstandings, particularly with text-based bo- forms, text forms of e-therapy. Depending on who you're communicating with, um, if you're just using text and no emojis and pictures or anything like that, sometimes sarcasm can be taken as meanness or um, you can miss, you'll miss a lot. Uh, even if you're using emojis, not everybody understands what that emoji means. If So if you send an emoji meaning one thing, they may have a different meaning associated with it. So you need to be very clear in your communications um, with the client that there could be misunderstanding. So if they feel that you're not hearing what they're saying, or if they feel that you say something to them that is hurtful or inappropriate or not helpful, they need to clarify to make sure that they understood what you meant. There are cultural and or language differences that may affect the delivery of services. Clients need to understand this. Um, The increased response time involved in asynchronous forms of communication is important. If you are using email, which most of us do not sit there and just wait for our computer to tell us we have mail. You may be working with another client. Who knows? So how long is it going to take for you to respond? If you are using text chat, text chat is not always super instantaneous. Most of us have had friends, um, and I'm sure I've been guilty at a time or another, where we've been typing a response, and it seems like that person is typing forever. And you're just like, please just hit send already so I can see what you're saying. Letting clients know that there could be a lag in response time, even with text chat. And they should know your average response time. If you happen to have a setup with a client where they can text you at any time during working hours, how long should they expect for it to take for you to respond back to them? Um, And there needs to be communication about, about time zone differences. If, like I said, Both Tennessee and Florida have two different time zones. If you are on a time zone difference with your client, make sure that that's clear. So if you think that your appointment is at 12 o'clock today and they happen to be in Eastern Standard Time and they show up at 12 o'clock, then you two are going to miss each other by a full hour. Make sure you know what the time zones are. In your informed consent, you also need to include your social media policy and your right to privacy and the possibility of restrictions on the client's use of any communication with the practitioner. If that client starts abusing 
the text message service or starts abusing email and just blowing up your inbox or your telephone um, or every time you, the person sees you online, they want to connect and do a video chat. You need to make sure that they understand that that's not going to work and set parameters with them about how much, you know, if you're texting is really difficult to set parameters, how many texts are okay. Um, email is a little bit simpler, you know, no more than one email a day or 10 emails a week, however you want to put it. That way they understand, like with email, that it's not an ongoing unless you're planning it this way, but generally it's not an ongoing back and forth discussion where they should expect to have 10 emails from you in one day. You need to let them know about your credentials, the physical location of your practice, and your contact information. Now, this gets a little bit dicey if you have a home office. You've got to figure out how to handle that. If you've physical location is generally for mail. So if you've got a home office, you probably want to look into some sort of a P.O. box, unless you just don't care about having your home address out there. In the informed consent, you also need to have alternatives to receiving assistance via e-therapy if they don't want e-therapy. Now, if they happen to be 250 miles away, the only other option you can offer is for them to come see you. But if they don't want e-therapy, what are the other options and what are the referrals in their local area that they can take advantage of? Um, and let them know about the alternatives to various forms of e-therapy. Maybe they're not comfortable with texting, but they're willing to do video chat or vice versa. You know, they may not be comfortable with one mode, but they're more comfortable with the other. So we need to make sure that they understand what all their options are. They need to be informed about internet and data security practices, including how to clear their cache and cookies after a session. Most of us don't even know how to do that until we get into doing e-therapy. That's one of those things you want to Google or ask your tech guy how to do so you can make sure that clients can do it. Nothing's getting stored in their um, browser history. And they need to know about the dangers of entering private information when using a public access or computer that's on a shared network. Most of the business computers, for example, are if somebody's connecting to you from their office, they're probably on a shared network, which means it's not secure. Um, if they're using a public access network, they decide that they're going to take their lunch break and go down to X and so fast food place and get therapy there. Then they're on an open network and it's potentially an insecure connection. And they need to know about the dangers, just like they probably wouldn't, hopefully wouldn't enter their credit card information there. You don't want them telling all the deepest, darkest secrets of their life there either. And the list goes on. In the informed consent, clients need to know that they need to check their employer's policies relating to the use of work computers for personal communication. If they are doing this from the office, not only does that include the work computer, that so whatever they have assigned to them at their station, can they use that for personal communications? Um, and what is their level of privacy? Generally, if it's a work computer on a work network, they're not entitled to any privacy. That's important to remember. But in many businesses, they also include the network. So if Sally Joe brings her laptop so she can do e-therapy, her e-therapy appointment with you at noon during her lunch hour, well, that's great. But if she is logged on to the 
business's network, they may have some claim to her privacy at that point. So it's really important that people using uh, business networks know what their privacy rights are. They need to know the risks and benefits of engaging in the use of distance counseling, technology, and or social media um, for help. And there are a lot of services out there that are other than traditional counseling. For example, if you go to some websites, and I'm not going to call them by name, there are forums, you know, kind of like Reddit forums, um, where people can talk about their problems and get mutual support and that kind of thing. And that's wonderful. But it's important to remember there are a lot of caveats to that. If you are in a, a chat room or a group or a thread or whatever it is with somebody, or with other people, they are not bound by any confidentiality agreement. Now, you know, we would hope that they would be respectful enough to, res to not copy and redistribute something that you post, but you can't guarantee that. That is one concern with technology, especially technology other than counseling directly with you. You need to discuss the possibility of technology failure and alternate methods of service delivery. If your internet goes out, it's a bad thunderstorm and the internet goes out and you have a therapy appointment with John Doe at one o'clock, what do you do? Well, typically the telephone is a really good backup, um, but, you know, if for some reason maybe a hurricane's coming through and, you know, it's, it's a disaster, if you will, and you can't contact by phone or by internet, then you need to be able to send some sort of an email to John Doe so he knows that the appointment's canceled and what else he can do, especially if you are going to be out of commission for some period of time. The informed consent needs to include emergency procedures to follow when the counselor's not available. If you're in crisis and I'm not available, this is what you need to do. And information about the fact that some insurance companies will deny benefits. So ethically, we need to tell people about that ahead of time, that I can't guarantee that your provider, your insurance provider will cover this. That being said, most of us, if you're in network, you're going to do pre-authorization. So you're going to clear it with the insurance company ahead of time that you're going to do e-therapy sessions with the client. Most insurance companies have um, either specifiers that you add on to the end of your CPT code that let them know that it was a virtual appointment or in the place where it says the location, they have a check block for online. So it's the regular CPT code, but the location designates that it was on the internet. Even if it's a video chat session, it is vital to note that in your paperwork. That is, you know, unethical to say it was face-to-face, -face, even if it was a... Um, video session and the only parallel i can give you to that there are a lot of states right now that require um, ceus to be live and they will not tennessee's one of them they will not recognize um, live interactive webinars as live seminars you have to go sit your butt in a room with the instructor and sit there and listen to them talk at you as opposed to doing it this way so not there are a lot of semantics there, but ethically, it is important to make sure that the insurance company knows whether they were in the exact same 
latitude and longitude GPS location or you were doing it a different way. We are going to get restarted in just a second. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, just for you to mull over, um, we are updating at all CEUs, we're updating our e-therapy certificate track, and I'm going to be redoing the course on HIPAA, high-tech, and technology requirements for e-therapy. And uh, so if you have questions about anything related to the technology aspect of e-therapy, I really encourage you to send me an email or send us an email at support at allceus.com because I will have my tech guy being the one that answers most of those questions just to make sure we get them right. A growing number of states are starting to add, um, especially Interestingly enough, it most, most of the time it comes from the addiction certification boards, but they are starting to add certifications or specialty credentials for e-therapists. So be aware of that in your own state if you want to look to see if there is a state credential that you can get for e-therapy. All right, that being said, let's go ahead and get started again with part two. I'd like to welcome everybody back to eTherapy Ethics, and we're going to continue talking about some of the considerations that we need to have when opening or conducting an e-therapy practice. And the next thing we're going to talk about is the emergency safety plan. Just like you do, I could say this before just about every slide, but lucky for you, I'm not. Um, just like in face-to-face -face situations, you need to have an emergency safety plan for the client. Um, the client should have the, and you should have, the number and address of the local hospital and in the case of a client with substance abuse issues, detoxification unit, a description of the conditions in which the client will seek emergency services instead of calling you. So at what point is it more appropriate to call the local crisis center, to call a face-to-face -face counselor, to go to the emergency room, yada, yada. And a lot of times this makes the client feel less vulnerable as well because they know they've got backup plans. Um, as an e-therapist, one of the things that is so challenging with e-therapy is that You've got your computer with you all the time. And in our culture, we tend to expect people, unfortunately, to be responsive basically 24-7. And that's just not healthy. So if you've got a client and if you have an e-therapy practice, make sure they understand what your, quote, working hours are and the policies for after-hour contact and, you know, what to do in the case of an emergency. Make sure they understand, again, the response time. So if they are, are in crisis and they need to get help now, sending you a text message or an email or even calling and leaving a message may not be the best choice. They may need to go directly to the emergency room. Ideally, identify a local therapist who the client can be referred to if e-therapy services are no longer appropriate. What some therapists do is they go to one of the databases like psychology today and they have the client look through those therapists and find one or two or sometimes three that are accepting new clients and that seem like they would be a good fit because you know when you read through the descriptions of the different therapists some of them you're like 
yeah, that's not, that's not going to be a good fit for me. So have the client identify a couple of local therapists that may be an effective person for them to talk to if they determine that either they don't like e-therapy or their situation changes to where they need to be seen in a face-to-face setting. Um, and that also, another thing you can do on the, in those databases is find therapists that take their insurance or have a sliding scale. Also, in this plan, you should have three people the client can call in the event of an emergency. If they are feeling suicidal, homicidal, or they just need support, who can they call? And releases of information for emergency contacts and the client's physician or psychiatrist, and under what circumstances you would contact them. In e-therapy, like we talked about before, if a client goes into crisis, it may not be that they need to be involuntarily committed. They may not need the crisis team out there. But you may not feel like it is appropriate to just end the call and be like, well, have a good day. So you think that you need to call one of the emergency contacts to come sit with the client until they can de-escalate um, or whatever phrase you want to use. So you want to have that in your release of information so the client knows that, number one, you have a release so you can call them and you don't have to try to do this all at the last minute. The client knows it's an option. Obviously, unless there is some really weird extenuating circumstance, you're going to tell the client before you call their emergency contact. You're not just going to say, you know, let's keep talking and, oh, by the way, I bet that's your mom knocking at your door. No, that's not cool. But know ahead of time what your resources are. Um, so Jennifer asks, what do you do about the local therapist if e-therapy is in place because of a lack of therapists like an extreme, extremely rural area? Well, yeah, that poses a challenge. One of the things that you would want to do is find, make sure you know the resources in terms of health departments, um, the emergency emergency department that the person can go to if they're in crisis. And then at that point, you have no other choice but to find the closest possible therapist. So in Gainesville, for example, our surrounding counties were very rural. Dixie, Levy, Gilchrist, Bradford, Union, you know, they were really, really rural. So if somebody needed a therapist, they often had to drive into Gainesville, which could be 45, a 45-minute 45 drive. However, um, you know, sometimes there's, there's just no avoiding it, um, and, and that's unfortunate. So, you know, there, there are upsides and downsides, but if for some reason the client needs face-to-face, -face, you're not going to be able to do everything. And uh, there are, in a lot of those rural areas, there are larger agencies that have satellite offices out there. You can also consider talking with them about other resources like um, their, their pastor or um, uh, trying to think any other religious leader that might be able to provide some sort of pastoral counseling if they can't get to a face-to-face -face therapist. Text-based counseling. I said there's a lot of stuff to consider. We're going to hit on some of those things right now. There are significant benefits to clients being able to express feelings and thoughts in text format at a distance and outside a face-to-face -face encounter. Clients, people, not just clients, people may be more willing to become more vulnerable 
in text-based settings if they're not sitting there looking you in the eye. Clients can compose thoughts, review the text, revise if so desired, and pause between writing and sending messages. They can pause and go, okay, do I really want to send this? Or is this what I'm trying to communicate? It gives them the opportunity, as my daddy would have said, for a mulligan. If they decide that, you know, that's not exactly what I was going to say, then they can, you know, erase it and try again. Once something is sent, then you have these ongoing chat records like we do in the classroom right now. And parts of the conversation can be reviewed with the client. Clients can, you can encourage a client after a session, for example, to go back and look at the chat log and identify each time that they used a particular cognitive distortion or each time that they used a, you know, self-deprecating statement or you can have them look for the good stuff too. But just giving you an example of how you can help them look at the chat stuff to become more aware of what they say and how they come off and what they communicate and what they're telling themselves as a matter of fact. The other thing that's interesting about text-based communications is once you write something, it's there. When you say it, you say it and it's gone and oof, forgot about it. You write it, it's there. When I do face-to-face -face sessions, sometimes I will write something on the board, you know, if a client says something that's particularly poignant for some reason, and we'll just sit there and look at it for a second because it doesn't disappear. It's like, okay, you put it out there. It's there. It's that elephant in the room. Now we got to talk about it. Dangers and considerations with text-based communication. Clients may express an imminent threat of harm, which doesn't get responded to in a timely fashion. If they know if you have a text service and they send you a text message and they say you know i'm you know really depressed i'm thinking of hurting myself yada yada maybe you're at your kid's soccer game and you don't get it for an hour now in the informed consent they should know that just because they send a text message doesn't mean that you will immediately get it and respond however if they are in crisis, they are probably not remembering that informed consent. They are frantically reaching out for help. So if clients express imminent threats of harm and they don't get a response in a timely fashion, then they may be more vulnerable and there could be increased liability. In forums in which comments are not held for moderation, someone may post something inappropriate which can trigger another client. If you're going to use forums, which are somewhat asynchronous, it is best to hold comments for moderation. That way you can make sure that anything that goes out is appropriate and, and not triggering. But even with the best of care, sometimes things are going to get said that trigger another client. You need to have a plan in place for how to deal with that in order to clarify any misconceptions. In text-based counseling, people can screen capture what's been typed and share it. Now, generally... If, if you're just talking about one-to-one -one with you and your client, the only two people who are going to capture it are theoretically you or the client. You're not going to do it because that would be unethical. And if they do it, then they are violating their own PHI. However, they also can capture all of that. And then if they take you to court for some reason, they can submit that as admissible evidence of whatever. When you're typing, when you're texting with someone, it's impossible to know with 100% certainty who typed it. Now, we talked earlier about verification when you're beginning a chat session with someone. Have them use a special code or phrase or something so you know that it is them that you're chatting with. 
However, after that initial text, and I think most of us have had this happen a time or, a, or two with non-secure stuff, they may you know, set their phone down to go into the kitchen and get, get something to drink, and their kid may pick it up, or their spouse may pick it up and start typing to you, and you th- still think that you're talking to Jane Smith, and in reality, you're talking to Jane Smith's boyfriend or, or child, and then Jane Smith comes back in the room, and you're like, and she's just devastated that her significant other or kid read the messages that you'd been typing. Um, that is something to, you know, bear in mind when you're, when you're chatting with someone. If for some reason their tone changes, their method of speaking changes, you know, ask them again what that code word was just to make sure that you're still talking with the same person. Even if you're in an active chat with somebody, they can set down their phone and that whole conversation may be readable by an unintended third party. And some text message apps may be set up by default to provide the person with push notifications, which can be seen by anyone near the phone. And again, I think we've all had it happen before where we've had our phones sitting out and we're at the dinner table or in a business meeting or something and we get a push notification that has a little bit too much personal information in it. I don't need my colleagues knowing when I'm going to my next doctor's appointment or whatever it is. And it's important to make sure that the text services you use, if the client knows the client knows how to turn on and off push notifications, and if they send push notifications, those push notifications merely say something like, you have a text from, you know, Dawn Snipes or, or whomever. Without clearly defined boundaries, text messaging options can be abused by some clients, possibly creating dependency issues. If you have a client that texts you constantly, you know, every time there's a hiccup during the day, they text you. They're texting you 5, 7, 20 times a day. That can be abused. Like I said earlier, it's hard to set parameters on how much texting is appropriate unless you're just saying, The only time we text is during our designated appointment times. But it is good to try to figure out some way to set boundaries so clients aren't abusing that. Elizabeth had the question about being both a coach and a counselor. If I did work online with both, do I follow the respective ethics for each? Um, Or am I always bound by counseling ethics because I have that license even when acting as a coach? That is really sticky and there is no good answer for that. There is no, not, not that I should say there's no good answer. I do not know of any case law that actually specifically addresses that, nor did I find it in any of the codes of ethics that specifically address that. The caveat there is as a coach, like I said earlier, coaches can see, treat people, can work with people anywhere. Licensed clinicians can only work with people in the state in which they're licensed and in the state in which the client is, they, they must be also licensed in the state in which the client is residing. Only places that they can practice for that between the coaches and counselors and what rules do we follow boils down to, to whom, can you, whom can you practice with? And I have no good answer for that. I have no good answer about what would be considered acceptable. As far as the rest of the counseling ethics, I would personally err on the side of being conservative and following the code of ethics of your licensing board, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, et cetera, 
when it comes to informed consent and all that other stuff that we've been talking about. If you wanted to be extra sure, it would be good to get a legal opinion about, you know, if you're licensed as a clinician, can you act as a coach and see people in any of the 50 states as long as you're only providing coaching services? A lot of clinicians, I can tell you, a lot of clinicians would tell you, yes, they haven't seen any prohibition against it. However, by the letter of the law, um, I just, I don't know the answer to whether it's kosher to practice with clients, um, even just doing coaching services in states in which you are not clinically licensed, if you are already a therapist. Um, What a lot of therapists do who uh, traverse that sticky situation is they are very clear up front with their clients that this is not counseling. I am not diagnosing or treating any DSM issue, period. What we are doing is working toward life enhancement and helping you achieve your goals. That was a really long non-answer, I know, but um, suffice it to say, I don't have any case law supporting either, either answer in terms of who can you practice with. But for the rest of the ethics, you worked really hard and really long to get your license. And our clinical ethics are a lot more stringent than coaching ethics. So I would most certainly follow those. Forums. Most of us are somewhat familiar with forums. If you want to think about Reddit is a current forum. Um, Back in the day before chat became so popular, forums were really popular. But now not, not as much. There are a variety of different types of forums. Secure, moderated forums on your website. If you have a forum for people who are struggling with depression on your website, and you can do it where it's only clients can have access, and you know, then you know that you're going to be talking to those people again, yada, yada. And it is secure, and it is moderated, but it is asynchronous. So there is a chance that they may express a desire to harm themselves or somebody may give them bad information if you're not holding comments for moderation. And since it's on your website, you bear a greater amount of responsibility and potential liability for things that happen directly on your website because it's just like if they were in a group in another room in your office building um, and you were sponsoring that group. If it is a secure, unmoderated forum on your website, then you definitely have a lot more risk associated with people getting in there, saying things that are inappropriate, triggering one another, flaming, doing whatever, and actually causing more harm. I would strongly discourage uh, uh, unmoderated forums. Then there are insecure moderated forums on someone else's website. So you can go to some websites um, that are designed to provide support or information, and they may be very good websites, and they may be mon- moderated by licensed clinicians or psychologists, and that's great, but they are likely not secure. They're likely not holding to that whole HIPAA guideline thing. Clients need to understand the risks associated with participating in those forums. Clients need to understand the risks in participating in any forums with anybody else because, again, their information can be distributed. So if they're in a forum for depression, even if that's secure and moderated on your website, and but it's not just for your clients, you let anybody in there, and they're 
best friend or their significant other joins under a pseudonym and screen captures stuff that they're saying and then shares it on the web, that could be devastating. It's important that people do, if they're using any sort of social networking, you know, outside of just a one-to-one with the, with the clinician, I really strongly recommend using a lot of anonymity safeguards. There are also insecure, unmoderated forums on someone else's website. This would be like Reddit. And yeah, sometimes there's good information there. Sometimes there's really bad information there. Clients need to understand how to evaluate information so they don't, you know, take everything as the God's honest truth. And if you link to resources and forums from your website, essentially it is seen as a recommendation on your part. Therefore, there is a minimal amount of increased liability if clients go there and experience harm. So do consider before you link to resources from your website, make sure that it's something that you feel is safe and you believe in. Your HIPAA risk assessment. Oh yeah, this gets boring, but we got to go through it. We're not going to go deep into HIPAA in this class. Like I said, we're going to do another class in a few weeks on HIPAA, high tech and technology for telemental health. But ethically, you know, Complying with HIPAA is an ethical imperative. So a risk assessment for HIPAA starts with identifying the protected health information that your organization creates, receives, stores, and transmits. And there is a lot of stuff that I didn't even know was considered protected health information, such as zip codes and um, obviously names, addresses, birth dates, social security numbers, things like that. But there are um, a lot more types of protected health information than one would think. And you can Google that to find definitions for protected health information. You want to identify the human, natural, and environmental threats to the integrity of PHI. Human threats would be somebody else accessing it, somebody else sharing it, um, somebody else corrupting it in some way. Environmental threats to PHI. If you have all of your client records on your hard drive in your laptop and you drop your laptop in a puddle of water and or the hard drive fries for some reason that is a threat to your the integrity of your PHI unless you've got it backed up somewhere you should always 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 have at least one preferably redundant backups of your PHI on HIPAA compliant servers in multiple locations if you have your computer set up in your workstation you know your house, your office, and for and you have the backup in another room in that same office. That's safe, right? No. And I can tell you there was a place that I used to work that experienced just this exact scenario. The computers in the offices and the backup drives all got fried when the building flooded. So there were no backups because there was, you want to have an off-site backup of some sort that is HIPAA compliant. Other environmental threats can be, you know, lightning strikes or anything that might break your computer or your hard drive. Uh, environmental threats can also include people accessing your information sort of inadvertently if they overhear what you're saying because you have a home office and your family's eating dinner in the next room. 
all of those things need to be considered. You want to assess what measures are in place to protect against threats to the integrity of PHI and the likelihood of areas where there's a breach that can reasonably be anticipated. We want to reasonably anticipate. You can't plan for everything, but do reasonably anticipate. And um, SAMHSA does have some great guidance out on disaster preparation. Common sense or a good HIPAA consultant can also help you plan for reasonably anticipated problems with data. And those biggest, uh, the biggest um, considerations would be access by an unintended third party, a hacker, uh, sending an email to the wrong person or a text message to the wrong person, or your hard drive going kaput and all of your data being lost. Those are three of the really big ones. And there, like I said, there's a lot of reasons hard drives can go kaput. So you need to figure out the safest way to back up your data and how often it needs to be backed up. Is once a day enough? Does it need to be every hour? How does that work? Determine the potential impact of a PHI breach and assign each potential occurrence a risk level based on the average of the assigned likelihood and impact. So something could be really likely, but it has very little impact. You know, if you're seven-year-old, happens to hear something you say when they walk past the door. Is that a breach? Well, technically, they heard something they weren't supposed to. Is that likely going to be impactful? No. Um, do you need to potentially address it? Yes. But, you know, you have that. Or you could have something like I talked about before, a flood that, you know, floods your entire building or, heaven forbid, a house fire. And your hard drive and your backup hard drive are destroyed now is that likely hopefully not by the grace of god that's not super likely but if it happened it would be catastrophic it's going to be important to mitigate that threat you want to document the findings of your evaluation and implement measures procedures and policies where necessary to ensure hipaa compliance and keep all documents for at least five years. You want to show that you are doing regular HIPAA assessments and reassessment. All business associates must provide a signed business associate agreement. And yes, I put it in all caps. And I know that in text, that means I'm screaming. Um, I'm screaming it from the rooftops. It must be signed. I was um, looking at a HIPAA compliant text messaging service the other day, and they were going on about how you know, they were so awesome and they were HIPAA compliant and made things so easy and yada, yada, and it was free and great. And I was like, well, wonderful. So how do I get a business associate agreement? Oh, we don't provide those for the free service. I'm like, well, if you don't provide a signed business associate agreement, then it's not HIPAA compliant. Bada bing. That's it. You want to have password protection programs so you can use really good encrypted passwords and you don't have to remember them. Um, I use one called LastPass. I'm sure there are others out there. It helps you. It stores those passwords for you so you don't have to remember them. You just have to remember the password to the vault. Um, another thing that some people do, don't do it, don't, don't do it, is they'll take their password, which is super secure, and they will put it on one of the virtual sticky notes on their desktop. Well, that's not secure. So that virtual sticky note may get backed up to seven other computers and so that password is out there now. When you make passwords, use numbers, special characters, and lower and uppercase letters. Use automatic screen savers and lock screens that kick in after a reasonable period of time. 
if you are in your own, you have a home office and, you know, you're typically alone, you don't have any teenagers, whatever, you may have that set so it doesn't kick on until you've been inactive for five minutes. If there's, if you're working in an office or there's a risk of somebody seeing PHI, it's better to have the screen kick on after 60 seconds. Store your passwords in an online password vault. So in the event of illness, a colleague can be provided with instructions on how to access your stored data. If you have all your stuff in a electronic health record, and heaven forbid you have a massive coronary and you are incapacitated for weeks on end, um, you know, you don't want your clients kind of flapping out there in the breeze. It's important that they be contacted and at least let know when you're going to be back, if not provide services in the interim. If you have your password stored in the online password vault, and then someone who also has that password can go in and access the information if necessary. Ideally, it's another licensed clinician, so they have the same ethical and legal prohibitions on them. And it's kind of like giving somebody a key to your house in the case, in case that it gets struck by lightning when you're at work and they need to let your pets out or something. It's just one of those good emergency backups. Have network firewalls. Use wiping software on your computer. Just deleting stuff doesn't completely delete it. You need to actually shred it and wipe it, and there are special programs for that in order to get rid of information on your computer and or prepare it for recycling or whatever. Um, Document your encryption protocols, and use full disk encryption on your computer. Um, And be aware, you know, this isn't on here, but be aware that if you send something to the printer, a lot of printers have hard drives in them that will store information. You need to make sure that information is wiped out of the printer's hard drive, and preferably that printer is in a secure location so any old person can't access it. The question comes in, do do counselors who do online counseling do so through their own private practice services or through an online counseling company? And the answer is both. Some people sign up with an online counseling service and, you know, the online service handles the marketing. It's kind of like joining a group practice and you get a cut of the hourly rate. Other people choose to do online counseling through their own website. And it's really... It takes a minute to get set up, but it's not super complicated as long as, you know, if you don't want to make, if you're not insistent that everything looks exactly the same, if you're willing to use a couple different programs, then it's really not hard to get set up to do it through your own private practice. Disaster planning. Redundant backups of data need to be available so they can be implemented rapidly. Preferably within an hour or two, but definitely within 24 hours, you can access that stuff and populate a new hard drive and be good to go. There should be a backup plan for appointments should the clinician or the patient be able to access a computer, be unable to access a computer. You're working along, then all of a sudden your hard drive crashes and it's the only computer and you have an appointment in 15 minutes. Oh crap, what do you do? Like I said before, the best drop back and punt for most people is a phone call. An alternate therapist is identified in the event that the regular clinician is incapacitated. Um, You know, if you're pregnant and you go into labor, if you 
heaven forbid, have a heart attack, or even if you've just, you've got the flu and you have a full caseload, you've got six people today and six people tomorrow, and there is no way you're getting out of bed. There must be some sort of backup plan. There needs to be a plan for acquiring new computers should your computer die. If you set up this, you know, flourishing online practice and you have one computer and it dies, then you're going to be kind of screwed if you don't have a backup plan to get some sort of a new computer. Um, know what sort of requirements you need for a computer should you have to buy one sort of on the fly. And there should be a plan for notification of clients in the event of a data breach. Regarding confidentiality, e-therapy must be done in a private office or room, not in your living room. And that's not just for video. That means text, too. Um, my kids are little nosy rosies. I can be sitting on my phone texting my friends and my son will come up behind me and start reading what I'm texting. I'm like, dude, none of your business. Go on. Uh, but it's... You know, it's less important when I'm talking to a friend. It's even more important um, if I were doing e-therapy. Would not be appropriate to be texting a client in a situation where somebody else could over oversee or overhear what was being said. Some people in the past, and hopefully it's not happening anymore, um, have set up a home office for e-therapy, and they have set it up on the computer in the living room, and they've said, oh, well, I'm just going to see clients when my family, my kids are at school, and my significant other is at work, and yada, yada, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen where they're in session with someone, and their kid comes home sick, and their significant other is, you know, walks in on them, and that would be a potential breach of confidentiality, because they could walk into the living room and see whomever is on that screen. So e-therapy must be conducted on a computer with full hard drive encryption and specially wiped when put out of service. E-therapy clients must have some means to verify their identity to you each session. Like I said, this is easy with video chat, with text and email. You need to figure out how you're going to do that. If you are initiating communications, you must use a secure format. And I link to this because there are some caveats. If a client initiates conversations with you using insecure means, like they use their Gmail account to email you, you can therefore assume, according to the law, not necessarily ethics, but according to the law, you can therefore assume that they are comfortable at least with some level of communication over an insecure network. However, if you are the one initiating the communication, you need to use secure HIPAA compliant format. And from an ethical standpoint, if they initiate conversation with you via email or text that is not secure, yes, you can potentially, by the law, assume that they are comfortable with some level of communication on an insecure network, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are comfortable having all their business shared on an insecure network. They may be comfortable confirming appointments or something like that, but not comfortable with, you know, actually having full appointments on an insecure network, which I would strongly discourage you from doing anyway. <clears throat> Emailing clients has a ton of caveats. You want to make sure that you're using secure communications when necessary. Now, clients can opt. They can sign a waiver, an informed consent, saying that they are willing to receive information via an insecure method, just like you would do on a release of information. 
I strongly suggest you identify specifically what types of information the client is willing to receive via that insecure modality, whether it be text or email, if they are insistent on doing that. There are so many affordable options for secure communications that it almost seems irresponsible not to just go ahead and use one of those, but I digress. Even email, just containing your name, like drsnipes at xyzcounseling.com, could potentially be a breach because it indicates that they're getting an email from somebody named Dr. Snipes at this counseling center, which you can interpret means the person seeing a therapist. Be careful when choosing your uh, email address and your uh, practice practice email. Life on the web. Boundaries, boundaries everywhere. It's easier than ever to get your contact information and show up at your door or call your phone at all hours of the night. Set clear boundaries. You can run different searches now and find where people live, where their families live. I mean, it's kind of creepy how much information people can find out about you. It's not common, but it's not impossible for a client to get your information and show up on your doorstep at 11 o'clock at night or on your mother's doorstep at 11 o'clock at night. So you need to set clear boundaries so they know what's acceptable. They can also get your personal emails, your, you know, just if you want to go through an academic exercise sometime, try to look up somebody or even try to look up yourself and see how much information you can find out about yourself online. It's kind of scary. Be, ha- be careful how much you use geolocation and check-ins on your social media. If you are using a check-in and you say, I just checked in at the Starbucks in Gainesville, Georgia, then that may go out to your, on your social media that could get shared. And it could, even if you have your social media locked down, it potentially could still get out to unintended recipients. Clients are going to research you. So if you have a social media presence, which I think most of us do, you need to be aware of this. They are going to research you and they're going to find out what you say about what. Um, Make sure anything that is publicly viewable is something you are okay with clients seeing. Before you go into e-therapy, preferably before you do, even if you're not an e-therapist, clients are looking at your social media. So you want to lock down anything that you're not okay with them seeing. And don't friend clients on your personal social media pages. Um, Instagram, uh, Pinterest, Facebook, any of those. If it's your personal site. Now, if it's your professional site, then that's a different story. I have a professional Instagram account where I post memes that are inspirational and designed to increase people's self-esteem and self-efficacy and all that kind of stuff. I don't share personal information on that. That is my professional um, Instagram account. And then I have a different one that's my, my personal Instagram account. So it is possible to have a group on Facebook, for example, that is Depression Support 101. Now, that is not secure. And you know, you know Facebook collects a whole lot of creepy information. Advise clients of that ahead of time if you're going to try to do some sort of support group that it is not secure by any way, shape, or form, so they need to be well aware of that before using it. Now, there are programs you can get that you can install on your own server that are Facebook-esque. They operate basically the same way, but they're not Facebook, and they're just on your server. 
So if you want to set up some sort of social media community, you can do that. And it's not super hard. But um, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Common violations. Inattention during a session. It's hard enough with some clients sometimes, I'll say it, to maintain full attention for an entire hour. Um, it's even easier to get inattentive when you're doing something like text-based chatting where you can you don't want to be doing please don't ever be text chatting with two clients at the same time big ethical violation you need to be able to devote your focus to that one client uh, or you know you don't want to be texting a client and watching tv that's just it's inappropriate and unethical boundary violations such as friending not following HIPAA and high-tech guidelines for email or calendar software. A lot of people follow those guidelines really well for uh, video chat, but then they're sending text messages and they have a um, appointment calendar that sends out insecure appointment reminders and, you know, it, it gets hairy really quickly. Working on a computer that does not have the whole drive encrypted. If you've ever looked at your... Um, the map or tree or whatever they call it of your computer. There are lots of places where temp files are stored. And those temp files do contain PHI if you're doing stuff on your computer that has PHI. And if, that's not, if those aren't encrypted, then you're potentially at risk. Don't engage in e-therapy without understanding the language and social norms of e-therapy. Communicating online is different than commuting, communicating in a face-to-face -face situation, but it's important to set norms and set boundaries um, and understand exactly what is effective and okay. Don't use non-secure methods like Second Life. Um, Second Life and avatars seem like great options um, because there's a lot you can do with them, but they are not secure. They are not HIPAA compliant. Again, there are programs like Second Life that you can get and install on your own HIPAA-compliant network, but that may be more than you want to do. Don't practice if you're not licensed to practice. Don't, plan, uh, don't forget to plan for power or internet outages. Make sure to develop a safety plan and referral sources in that person's location. Learn the language of the internet. Know what the different acronyms mean. Um, Ideally, so you're not having to Google them every time your client sends you a message. You know, what does that mean? Uh, teenagers, especially if you're texting with teens, they have a lot of acronyms that they use amongst themselves that if I were going to work with a, a youth, it would be important for me to know what those are. We want to treat patients who would, by common professional standards, need a higher level of face-to-face -face care in a face-to-face -face setting. If you don't think that they can be safely and adequately seen in a virtual format, even if they're in a remote location, um, then you may need to say that I just don't think this is safe for us to do. Um, failure to provide all normal paperwork, such as intake treatment plan, informed consent, and HIPAA notifications. These are really important. You need to get them signed, and you need to get them back. Um, ideally, they would snail mail them back to you so you have a official signature because most clients don't have something like DocuSign. You can sign up with a service like DocuSign, which is what we use for real estate transactions and stuff, so you can get an official, authentic 
digital signature if you want to be super fancy schmancy. And you want to verify the identity of the consumer each time you're talking to them. And this includes on the phone. Effective techniques. This is the fun part. Psychoeducational information with audio or video recordings. You can make little vlogs and embed them on your website or even have a YouTube channel that has psychoeducational information. You can make it only available to your clients. They have to have the link to access it or you can make it publicly available. You can have clients fill out paper pencil workbooks and take pictures and email you the data or scan it in and email you the data or you can have them fill out journals or worksheets that are secure fillable PDFs. Right now, I haven't found a great program for doing that that's super easy to use, but there are programs where you can create your own secure fillable PDFs, and as soon as the client fills it out, just like, you know, we've all filled out PDFs online before, and hit send, it goes straight to your server. You can use secure group text or video chat, self-directed self-help apps. There's a lot of mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy apps out there, but you can also use like the fitness apps for the Fitbit or any of those others to gather data about clients' um, exercise patterns and their sleep patterns, and for sometimes they all integrate with nutrition as well. And that can provide you a lot of information about some of their biological underpinnings of what's going on. You can use online journaling, blogs, or vlogs on a HIPAA-compliant site, or you can have somebody keep an online journal in Word and email, securely email their journal entries to you. There are some computer games you can use to help with anxiety. There's a lot with gamification. Um, one of the examples I read about was, for example, using a flying game to reduce fear of flying. Now, my concern with that, I've played with some of those flying games before, and I almost always crash my plane. So don't set the client up to increase their fear. But there is some information that computer games can be effective. You can have clients do online collages that can be screen printed and securely emailed to the therapist. One service that I really like, and it's free, um, is Canva. People can make infographics or posters or whatever in there using their drag and drop software they can upload pictures and then they can download it as a pdf and email it to the therapist this is good if you're having them do a gratitude collage or something that's not super uh revealing but again canva is not hipaa compliant and secure so there is some element of risk there that you've got to weigh against the benefit. You can do cartoon strips using digital art programs, which can be downloaded. And these links take you to multiple different programs that are available, especially people with autism or who are on the spectrum or who do better seeing things as opposed to talking about them. You can print out cartoon strips with the little speech bubbles and fill in the speech bubbles. In order to do it in a secure way, um, you can print it out without text in there, and then you can add the text by hand later. Art projects. Clients can do art projects offline, photograph them, and send them to you via secure email. Anything you do in face-to-face -face can often, you can figure out how to do it online. As I said earlier, data from fitness trackers or other health or mental health-related apps can be screen-captured and sent via email, so the therapist has an idea about, you know, how things are going. Service options for secure text, and I'm not endorsing any of these. I just did a quick Google search. Tiger Text, Zinc, 
click and spoke are available for secure texting they are not free services um i'm pretty sure that all of them are willing to sign a business associate agreement uh, video vc doxy me zoom and skype are either hipaa compliant or have hipaa compliant options zoom and skype you have to get a spe specific package in order for them to guarantee your HIPAA compliance and sign the business associate agreement but you can and you're on zoom right now you know it's pretty easy to use so it's not overwhelming VC is another one I like VC because they do also offer uh, virtual waiting rooms that you can have clients back-to-back -back, but that is those are your choices and DoxyMe has some limited free HIPAA compliant video chat available do your research Talk to people that are in your social networking groups about what services they like. Remember, they can claim to be HIPAA compliant until the cows come home, but if they won't sign a business associate agreement, you are not covered. I said if there was time, we were going to re review the um, NASW standards for technology and social work practice, and there's not time, so you're going to dodge that one. Suffice it to say that it's pretty much a reiteration of everything we talked about in class today they give their own examples of ethical violations and things that need to be included and what's expected of a clinician for online counseling but if you're a social worker obviously it's important to read that if you are a counselor you can read NBCC's it will probably leave you going exactly how are they defining this that or the other because they don't define it very well again I think the NASW standards are much more specific um, or easily 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 translated to practice so you may want to read those anyway they definitely don't conflict with one another I went through a ton of stuff is are there any questions that you have related to ethics in e-therapy remember in the next few weeks we will be doing a another kind of impromptu class if you will um, it'll probably be a Wednesday class on HIPAA high-tech and technology requirements for e-therapy so if you have any questions related to those topics um, email me at support at allceus.com and I will make sure to get those qu questions answered in the video if this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.